Hello and welcome to the Education Redefined webcast series, where I uncover educational best practices and share success stories with every single episode. Go ahead, grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and enjoy a few moments talking about teaching and learning with me. Hi, my name is Sandhya Lakhanpal and I am your host for this series. Subscribe to our webcast or look out for new episodes on YouTube. Join our Facebook group for the latest trends in the field of education. In this episode, I speak with Nancy Redding, who has dedicated her life to empower students with dyslexia. In addition to being a fellow in the Academy of Orton Gillingham Practitioners and Educators, Nancy has many accolades to her name. Nancy is a former Community College Learning Disability Specialist and has served as a learning specialist at both high school and elementary school levels in Northern California. With over 40 years of expertise as a private academic therapist, Nancy has been the past president of the Northern Branch of International Dyslexia Association and a regional representative for the Branch Council of International Dyslexia Association. Nancy has also co-authored The Patterns of Success, a reading and spelling program designed to supplement the Orton Gillingham intervention approach. During this conversation, Nancy helps uncover the truth behind empowering students with dyslexia. She talks about how students with dyslexia learn, distinguishes balanced literacy from structured literacy, provides tools to initiate a successful conversation with the school system, talks about the significance of early identification and early intervention, also gives a few nuggets on the importance of advocacy, talks about how to judge the efficacy of a reading program for your child, and shares a success story, and much more. Listen as Nancy peels the layers to set students up for success. Nancy, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me this afternoon. I am so glad to have you on this podcast where we are uh, brainstorming techniques to help parents and teachers of students who teach, who, students who've been diagnosed with dyslexia. I'm so glad to be here. Uh, it's an honor to be asked. Thank you. Thanks, Maria. Absolutely. Um, I wouldn't have it any other way. So Nancy, I have a question for you. I know we have the topic under discussion is dyslexia, um, but I know that you are revered amongst teachers and you have dedicated your life to dyslexia. Um, I want to start with your journey. I want to I know what brought you to dyslexia and to all these years that you have specialized in training teachers and reaching out to students to help students with dyslexia. What brought you here? Um, just, I just want to hear how this whole journey came to be. Okay, well, thank you. Good question. I think as with so many of us who are in this field, there's sort of a personal journey. Um, my first teaching job was in high school. I was teaching at a public high school here in San Jose, California, where I live. And I had a group of ninth graders. I was asked if I wanted to teach reading. And I thought, well, great, I love to read. Uh, the reading class ended up to be a group of 30, bright young ninth graders with about an average reading level of second grade. 
we really did not have a curriculum to teach them and there were very few materials. Others of us that were in that, uh, you know, in, involved in that, worked hard to try and help these kids, but I remember feeling so uh, just powerless. It has led me on a lifelong journey of discovering how the brain learns to read. How do we as people learn to read? And how do we help these students who don't learn to read in a timely manner? Uh, so I began working as a, it, it, I got a master's in special education with a emphasis in learning disabilities, which was actually a very new field then. I worked as a reading uh, pullout intervention person in elementary school for quite a few years. I jumped from there to the California Community College and worked with young adults and adults who had dyslexia. We developed curriculum to help them. Uh, and as well, I did a lot of testing there, which I think really helps a lot of evaluations of, of uh, students. Uh, and I think that helps you see how they process and understand a little bit more about how the dyslexic brain works. From the community college, I went back to high school, which was where I started as a high school English teacher. Mm -hmm. When I first uh, had these students who struggled with reading, I went back as a learning specialist in a high school here in the area, and I did that for about 15 years. When I left there, I decided that I wanted to go back to my roots, which was uh, teaching the Orton-Gillingham method. And so I uh, aligned myself with Orton-Gillingham Academy, and now I do teacher training. Wonderful. What, what an incredible journey. Um, you opened the door to Orton Gillingham, and I'm really curious. I hear that, that very often, that name comes up pretty often for somebody who's new to dyslexia. Can you give me a little bit of background on what Orton Gillingham is and how did the different programs that are aligned with Orton Gillingham came to be? Great question. Again, because you hear this term, Orton Gillingham, it's such an odd, what, how did that get to be described? How, how did that get to be a way to describe a way to teach? It is named after Dr. Samuel Orton, who was a, a doctor and he was a neurologist. He worked with some students who were very smart young students who were not learning to read. And he realized that this was a brain thing long before we had a way to actually look at the brains of dyslexic students. He in turn worked with Anna Gillingham, who was a uh, psychologist and her expertise and her bent was to look at language. She broke our language apart into its many phonemes, its many sound bites and developed a very structured approach to teaching students with dyslexia. Together, the two of them, along with others, uh, put together a very multi-sensory multi structured program, very explicitly teaching students about the, uh, lang our language, about how to read and spell. Wharton Gillingham is really the grandfather of everything we now call structured literacy. And there are many programs based on Wharton Gillingham. 
Uh, it is an excellent way of teaching all kids, uh, but particularly those who struggle with reading. I see. I see. Okay. So I'm going to navigate a little bit backwards from the first question where you walked us through our journey. For someone who's really, really new to dyslexia, um, what, I mean, let's start with the very basics. What is dyslexia? Is it really a disability or is it just the brain is wired differently and then needs to be trained how to read? It is definitely the way our brain, a, a particular brain learns language. I do not like the term disability. I don't like learning disability, but as I used to tell kids, just let that roll over you. Sometimes we use that term because it gets us the uh, programs and the accommodations that we need. Really, dyslexia is a kind of neurodiversity. Neuro meaning uh, brain, right. diversity meaning different. As Gordon Sherman, one of my favorite researchers said, he called it cerebrodiversity, mm -hmm. same, same thing. Our brains, we all have different brains, just like we all have different faces. We all have amazing faces, but they're all different. Well, we all have different brains. That is what makes the world go round. If you have, and, and we all have strengths in our brain and we all have areas of concern or weakness, things we find harder to do. I know for myself, I have a lot of trouble with music. I don't hear the different notes. I don't, when I listen to symphony, I don't hear all the different instruments. I have a hard time appreciating music, learning it. But I never really had to take music. I took one music course in college that was required, passed only because of my effort, I think. But if you have a hard time hearing the differences in the sounds of language, if that runs together for you, if you have a hard time learning to read and spell, wow, that is very difficult for you. And you might like it to be described as a disability because you feel that it is really hard for you. But I would, I would argue that uh, it is really a learning difference. We all learn differently. And if your brain is wired such that reading and spelling is difficult for you, then we might call you dyslexic. I, I want to also add dyslexia, the term dyslexia often gets a bad rap and people are afraid of it. It simply comes from two Greek combining forms, dis meaning difficulty and lexia meaning words or language. It is difficulty with language. I see. It can be as small as a person who is not a really good speller, who can't picture the orthographic representation, the spelling of a word in their head, or it can be on a continuum all the way to some of our students who really, really struggle just to pick up the basics of reading. I see. Does that help? It does. It does. And I, I think I can, I can start, I'm starting to make the connection between 
how the brain learns differently and the structured approach that comes from Orton Gillingham. But for the sake of the listeners, if you could break it down on two terms that I have, I have heard very frequently. One is structured literacy. The other one is balanced literacy. And I know that there's like, so for my own child who goes to school and she's going to third grade, you know, in a single day, even in a 45 minute session, um, there's so much that's thrown at these kids, right? You, and, and a lot of times teachers, and, and, and there's a good rationale behind it because we want these little kids to be well-rounded individuals and we want to expose them to as much as possible. And there's nothing against that. But for somebody who has dyslexia and is getting exposed to 45 minutes of jumping through different topics, how does that person even feel? And, 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 and I'm guessing that, that, that the number of things we throw at them is, is the balanced literacy approach where we want to expose them to as much as what, what can be the exposure that can be possible. But how, how does that work for someone with dyslexia? Is that good? And then how does that balanced literacy approach differ from the structured approach? Okay. I'm going to back up a little bit too. And I'm going to talk about the fact that along with areas of concern in the dyslexic brain, there are many strengths. And I feel like um, that structured literacy really teaches to the strengths. What are the strengths of a dyslexic learner? Of course, every dyslexic learner is different, uh, just like we are all different. But some of the things that we find uh, often are strengths are the cognitive. They might be very good uh, at reasoning skills, good at long-term memory, good at storytelling. Um, they might be good in math or good in music or physical activity. But I'm gonna look, think about that cognitive strength. Uh, and whereas a reader who is not dyslexic uh, uses actually the back of their brain for, and, and reading becomes automatic fairly quickly, the dyslexic reader often uses this frontal lobe, the reasoning and the long-term memory of the frontal lobe in order to learn to read. I see. And structured literacy by teaching things, every phonic element explicitly and sequentially and cumulatively can help this dyslexic learner who is good at reasoning kind of figure all this out. Uh, their long-term memory can help them hold on to perhaps some of the um, spelling generalizations that are applicable to our language. So I would say that structured literacy, as I, I think structured literacy is a necessary component of all reading instruction but it is particularly needed for those students with dyslexia. So what is structured literacy? Structured literacy refers to an explicit, systematic, sequential teaching of uh, the five big elements uh, that the National Reading Panel put out in 2000 that should be a part of any reading instruction. We should have phonological phonemic awareness, 
phonics. We should teach fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension. Structured literacy teaches each of those things in a very uh, sequential manner, and we teach one thing at a time. We teach something and then from there we build on to the next idea and then to the next idea so that there is a hierarchy of skills. Balanced literacy is um, a form, it is an, uh, an uh, offshoot, I guess I would say, of our whole language. When whole language decided that the proponents of whole language decided there should be a phonic element, we should teach some phonics, they came up with what they call balanced literacy. And they say, yes, we do teach phonics. We recognize phonics as needed. But I often call it whole language with phonics sprinkled on top. <laughs> um, they, many teachers who use the balanced literacy approach don't teach things sequentially. They don't teach them in small increments. In a school, several schools I've worked in, you know, you look at a spelling book and, you know, week 10 is going to be five ways to spell the long A sound. Well, some kids, there are those kids, and we'd say there was maybe 10% of kids who need almost no instruction in that and they can get it right away. And then you have about um, another uh, 20%, uh, 30% who really need some structured literacy. They need to understand, they need to be taught these one at a time. Right. Um, and then you have uh, another 30 to 40% for whom that explicit instruction is absolutely necessary. They're not going to get anywhere without it. So balanced literacy, I think, um, is on the right track by including phonics. But I would say that most teachers in that uh, realm do not spend enough time on each element, and they do not necessarily teach in such a cumulative way that the students um, can reason it out. Uh, structured literacy is also very multi-sensory. And I know that uh, our young kids, many programs and different uh, ways of teaching are multi-sensory. Um, we say that uh, Orton-Gillingham and other structured literacy programs, we use simultaneous multi-sensory. In other words, we want kids saying things as they're writing. If we have them tracing, we want them tracing and saying it and seeing it and feeling it. So there's a lot of what we say is simultaneous multi-sensory work going on at the same time. Right. Does that give you enough of a sense of the difference between balanced literacy and structured it does. literacy? It does. And, and it makes a lot of sense in how you said structured literacy kind of builds one concept on top of the other so that you can hold on to what has been taught before and then keep building on it without losing the baseline, so to say, that the teacher has already built versus hopping from one topic to another, which is which is what you generally see in a classroom. 
Yes. You know, if I was uh, teaching tennis, I would not start out with how to have a good backhand. I would really start out with how to hold the racket and how to um, hold your feet and how to get your body. Right. And it's the same thing with our teaching of reading. We really need to start with the basics so the students have a, a great base on which to add these different elements. Right, right. And to reason how they fit together. Right. A strong foundation can only lead to a stronger house, as, as I can as I can say. Yep. Um, and mm -hmm. once you teach them the basics, then they can generalize those, right? Once you've taught them the the rationale behind the long A, then they can generalize it to any new words that they come across versus you know, not not teaching it or not spending enough time trying to solidify that concept. And then, then they are trying to substitute words or pronounce mispronouncing them or putting the stress in the wrong place and all of all of the above. <laughs> yes. And we not only teach, I mean, it gets down to this. We not only teach the different spellings for long A, but we teach the frequency. What is the most frequent? What is the most used uh, spelling for long A? So that when students are breaking apart a word for spelling, they can really think about some of the uh, ways of spelling long A that they know, whether it's A-I, which comes in the middle of a word, right. A-Y, which comes at the end, A consonant E, which is probably our most common way of spelling a long A sound, uh, particularly in a one syllable word. So we really, you know, we, we actually teach, um, you know, how to think about uh, that word and what would be a reasonable way to spell long A in any given word. And I think now I, I hear when you, you talked about that whole frontal lobe and the analytic aspect of somebody with dyslexia, when you explain the rationale behind how the structured approach is broken down, how the English language kind of breaks apart, what's the rationale of how these words function, and, and when that, that brain can then start to figure out that, okay, analyze how the newer words would be put together and hence become better readers in the long run because they've grasped all the, the basic foundations of the English language. That's right. That's right. Um, we are the lucky recipients of 30 to 40 years of, of really amazing brain research on how students learn to read, as well as a lot of um, studies that have been done in classrooms all over the world about how kids learn to read and what works and what doesn't. So we are we are the lucky recipients of that. That's and good. Uh, yeah. So That's we're good. we're you know we can we we really realize that this is what many of our kids need, um, whether they're dyslexic or they have other reasons that they're not learning to read in a timely manner. Right. And there's no reason why this approach would not work for a child who is not dyslexic. It, it, it is the foundation is so strong. The, the bricks are so well laid together that it would function for a normal kid just as well as it would function for somebody with learning disabilities or dyslexia. That's right. And, and what I say is that every approach to reading, you know, we have the, the reading wars. Do we do this or do we do this? How about if we do them one at a time? How about if we give all the kids some structured literacy and those kids who need more intense structured literacy, 
we continue with that and those kids, those students for whom this comes easily, then we move into uh, more of reading comprehension and this wonderful um, uh, literature that of, the goal of all of us is for kids to love literature, to love reading, but we need to figure out how to get there and to give uh, those students who need it this strong foundation as long as they need it. Meanwhile, still reading aloud to them, still accessing audiobooks or whatever it is so that they have that love of literature. Right. So there's a place in our education system for all of these. Uh, they can work hand in hand. They don't have to be an either or. I right, think. right. And, and I love how you brought in the access accessibility aspect of it, that they don't have to lose the pleasure of reading just because they haven't uh, figured out the code of the language yet, right? They, they can still get that through audiobooks and technology being a blessing in disguise, right? We, we have audiobooks, we have Learning Ally, which is a big da database of, of audiobooks that is accessible almost free to most school systems and students with dyslexia. That's right. Yes. Right. Learning That's Ally. Right. I have worked with uh, Learning Ally for um, <laughs> many, many decades uh, in, in its various forms. Uh, it is a wonderful, wonderful uh, organization. Yes. And I think I would, I would want to add to that. Uh, we know that there is a, uh, the, we have a, a, an amazing plasticity in our brain and that it can change as we teach it to learn to read. It will, our brains do change as uh, the brain learns to read. But there is a window of time between about four and seven years old, uh, seven years of age, that where the brain is just right, just ready to learn all of the skills that are precursors and go along with teaching reading. Right. So although we never give up and all of our brains, luckily, even at my age, there's a lot of plasticity in my brain. I can learn new things. But as far as reading goes, I would say that there is a window of time uh, in which the brain can learn even faster. And can particularly this, uh, the language base for reading. There have been studies done, uh, Simos and his colleagues in 2002, and many studies uh, subsequent to that, that have shown that actually the brain changes the way it learns how to read through, can change how it learns to read through intense intervention and I through see. good intervention. I see. I, I think that goes hand in hand with the research where you have the accent-free bilingual kids, right? When they are under in that same age group where they are learning two right. languages because the brain is so nimble at that point in time that they can absorb um, and, and you get past that age of puberty and you, you know, you can still learn the language, which brings in the plasticity, but it's not accent free at that point in time, because it's not That's native, right. native language at that point, because you didn't learn it in those ripe years. So yeah, that, that research. I like that. That's a good way to think about it, you know? Yes. Yep. Yep. Um, so for somebody whose child was recently diagnosed with dyslexia, there's just a lot of information that gets thrown their way, right? Um, 
Uh, maybe maybe the question should be backed up even before that. So let's say a parent suspects that they ha their child has dyslexia. Where can they start? Do they contact the school system? Do they go outside for testing? Like, what are the right resources to get the help and advocate for a student with potentially a learning disability or dyslexia? That is a great question again, and uh, I could go on for hours on the answer because there is no perfect pathway to get to what you need. Right. It depends on where you live, what your school district is um, advocating for at the time, uh, etc. I would say that if you suspect that your child is not learning reading and spelling in a timely manner, and this could be even with a preschooler who's not enjoying rhyming, who's maybe uh, was late to talk, who maybe you're trying to teach letter names and they're not picking it up. If you suspect that, first of all, embrace it and go, wow, okay, this is something I know. Let's see where we can go from here. Um, being an advocate for your child is hugely helpful uh, at every step of the way. So I would say, and if your child is in first, second, third grade, you know, begin, you want to talk with the teacher, you want to actually begin a conversation with the school. And if possible, you want to encourage the school to work with your student. If you believe testing is needed, um, I would start with the school. You have, you, if you put it in writing to your school that you wanted evaluation for your child, I know it's not this simple, people are going to be rolling their eyes as I say this, but the first thing you want to do is put in writing to your school district that you feel an evaluation of your child is uh, called for and that you would like to have a study team or however your school district does it to uh, look at that possibility. Some school districts say, well, we, you know, we don't think there's enough evidence. Uh, I would disagree with that. And I would uh, say as a parent, your right is to ask for an evaluation. Even, uh, and, and okay, let me, let me keep going on this and then I'll back up a little bit. Uh, if that doesn't happen, if you have the means, if you can, if you want to do an outside evaluation, many school districts will then take that uh, and uh, they will use that to help perhaps identify your child or perhaps get you services. It is not an easy road. Do not be discouraged, but keep on working. Backing up on that, uh, I think there are many states right now who uh, have laws requiring uh, universal screening for dyslexia in kindergarten, first, second grade. I am very much in favor of that. I do not want kids labeled in kindergarten. I'm not asking for that or all this other stuff. I just feel like we can screen kids and say, Perhaps this group of students is not learning letter names. We need more intervention on letter names. This group of students is not picking up the phonology of the language. They are not rhyming. They are not uh, able to tell me which words begin alike or to, to tell me what sound they begin with. 
wow, we need more intervention in that. We need to be working with those kids. So early intervention is huge, huge, huge. Uh, if we had good early intervention, our special education rules would greatly be reduced and actually it would save money for school districts. Many school districts say, well, we don't have special ed money till second grade, therefore we can't test till second grade. They're doing a disservice to the students and they're doing, uh, they're, they're actually causing themselves probably to, to spend more money. Right. Back to the individual student, uh, the parent who advocates for their child, uh, whether it's just getting more intervention at the school, whether it's getting testing, whether it's doing outside testing, uh, the more you can do to help your child, the earlier you can do it, uh, the better. Uh, but it is a long road. I know it's a, it's a it's a journey. It's not an easy thing. I, the, the best thing you can do for your child is be their advocate, do whatever you can to get them the services they need. Right, right. And I agree with you. I, I agree with you. I think you touched both aspects, early identification, early intervention, and as many pillars of support that you can offer. And eventually when they transition from that high school to uh, college, they can advocate for themselves because they have seen you do it for all these years, right? They can speak yeah. up for themselves. So we you know. really used to try in a middle school and then into high school to transition from the parent being the advocate to the student being the advocate. And certainly when they finish high school, you want these students to know how they learn, to know what their strengths are, to know what they need to be successful in school and be able to articulate that to their teachers uh, as they go off to college. Right, right. Advocate to the professors. And I think that goes then into that metacognitive zone, which I think is necessary for all kids, right? To know what their strengths are, how they learn, and then channelize those to be successful in life, right? Whether you're analytically, you know, strong or you're linguistically strong, you got to rely on it, whether you're, you've been identified with dyslexia or not. I mean, we all have to fall back on our metacognitive skills to learn and further our education and be successful in life. And for, we want students to really know and appreciate and use their strengths and affinities. And uh, Mel Levine, who was a, a, a researcher and a teacher many, many years ago, very well known in the field, used to say, if you use your strengths and affinities uh, to choose your occupation in life, to choose what your path in life is, you're going to be a much happier person. Right. And so the more you know yourself, the more uh, you will be not only successful, but a happy human being. hundred percent agree. hundred percent agree. So Looking at, I, I know that school systems offer a lot of programs and then they also give you a lot of resources. One of the things that that I am uh, as a teacher and as a parent, I'm, I'm skeptical and I want to know the efficacy of a program when I'm evaluating it for my own child. For a parent who has a child with dyslexia, how can they evaluate the efficiency, the efficacy of the program, be it in the school system or outside the school system that this is the right therapy for my child. This is the right road, which is going to lead to success. 
I think that as a parent, you want to uh, be assured that your student is getting the very best instruction they can get, correct? Right. So uh, we know through all the years of what is now called the science of reading, uh, what works. We know that. We know that explicit instruction in phonics, in um, phonological and phonemic awareness, in fluency, in vocabulary, and in comprehension are what we need to offer our students. If your student is not getting instruction in basic phonics, uh, along with some work in fluency and uh, work in vocabulary development, I think I would be uh, really questioning what's going on at school. If you are you looking at whatever program you're school is using, or if you're working with a tutor or trying to find a, a tutor or an educational therapist, you want to ask, what is the research behind this program? And you want the program's research to be done independently, not done <laughs> um, by the company itself. Right. I would be extremely leery of any program that said they were a quick fix. It, it's just not, there is not a quick fix. This is the way your brain is wired. This is the way you were born. Yes, we can make adjustments to the way the brain processes uh, our reading. Yes, we can make improvements, but this is your brain. And uh, you don't outgrow dyslexia. So you really want to look at the research behind the program. I would also really look at the, re, at, the, at the person who's administering it. I now do a lot of teacher training in public schools uh, and with individuals outside of schools who do uh, uh, different kinds of tutoring. All right, most of our people in the age range that are doing that did not have a strong phonics background in school. So when we teach this, you can call it phonics, or you can call it the structure of language. When we teach, when I teach my teachers the structure of language, I hear over and over again, wow, how come nobody ever taught me this when I was getting ready to be a teacher? Right. Our kindergarten, our first, our second grade teachers really need to know the structure of English language. They need to know how it works, and then they need to know how to teach it. So if I was looking at a program or a teacher, I would say, how, how much do they know about this? Uh, and is there an alternative? Someone who actually does know the structure of language, has some background in that, and uh, also in the tenets of direct explicit instruction for my child. Then you're going to go along, you're going to give it six, eight weeks, you're going to give it a semester, however long you want to. And then you're going to look at what kind of progress, what, what is progress monitoring, what progress monitoring is being done. And is my child uh, making progress? Not every program or approach is going to be right for every child. And there are a lot of good programs out there, but you have to 
see if your child is benefiting from it as well. Right, right. Responding to the program growing, uh, essentially, is what you're looking at, that regular assessment and growth. Um, That's right. There's no quick fix, but you do want to see growth and you want to see some aha moments and your child making some progress and right. seeing that they are actually learning uh, when they go out and see a sign. Oh, I know those letters or I know what that word is and, and those kinds of things. Right, right. Um, so, Nancy, I want to close the loop of the journey where we started with the first question. Um, is there a success story that you can share with us? You have touched so many lives. You have touched so many students. Um, I want to assure my listeners that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Can you share a success story either of a teacher or a student who you have touched and has, has grown through therapy and has shown pro progress and is at the other end of the tunnel, you know, on his or her way to success? That's a, uh, boy, I, I can sort out many. I can't think of a success story without thinking of a student that I mentored in high school. Uh, this was a young student who was, um, he was Hispanic. Uh, neither of his parents had gone to college and yet he was um, a very motivated student. He was also extremely dyslexic and had been told when he was younger by an evaluator that he would be lucky to finish high school, which I, I just, I, I, I mean, I just sad. can't even believe it. And when I first met him, of course, I didn't know that, that sort of story came out later. He entered the high school I was in and uh, sometime before the end of ninth grade, he came into my office in the counseling office. I was the learning specialist, put his head on the desk and said, you know, Mrs. Redding, I think I'm just gonna, I, I'm gonna drop out. I, I just don't think I can do this uh, anymore. I don't think I'm, I'm ready for this. And I said, oh, wait a minute, let's, let's slow down. So I encouraged his uh, mom uh, through some public funding, not, and she uh, was able to get a new evaluation of him, which did recognize his dyslexia and the person that evaluated him spoke to him about how bright he really was, but how dyslexic he was. And that um, he really, through a lot of therapy and use of accommodations could be successful. That really helped to turn him around. He stayed in school, which was great. Awesome. Uh, he learned, uh, he, he did, tutoring over the summer, every summer, in order to learn more about structure of language and to build his own skills. Meanwhile, he also connected with um, a lot of accommodations. He got very good with learning ally. He was uh, listened to his textbooks and his literature books. And when he graduated from high school, he had, um, I, I get tears in my eyes, it's hard for me to talk about. He had several acceptances in um, engineering programs from oh, wow. very good networks. It was wow. it was quite the turnaround. What did he do? He went to a local in university. He did um, engineering, and the first thing he did was sign up to be in their tutoring program. And he tutored young kids in middle school 
who were dyslexic. Oh, what a calling. He was such a give back person that and in college was not easy for him. He had to work really hard, but he always made sure that he also did some tutoring and mentoring of younger students. So that is, I mean, I can't help but think of him when I think of it because um, of a success story. But I also have many teachers who came in saying, you know, I know I have kids in my class who are not learning to read it and I really don't know what to do about it. And by the time they finish, um, we teach structure of the language, we teach how to teach reading explicitly. And uh, then many of our teachers go on to practicums where actually I mentor them for almost a year. Then they have the confidence that they can either be in a regular classroom or work as a pullout reading specialist or whatever job they choose. And they can tell when students are not progressing as they should. They can identify the actual reasons they're not progressing and they know what to do about it. They know how to teach them. So I, I would advocate that there are many structured literacy programs out there today that are very good. I don't really, I'm not a person that likes to say this one and not this one, etc look at the research, but there are a lot of programs um, and uh, try and uh, make sure that your child, whether they're in school or out of school, is benefiting from um, the science of reading, from which we know so much about how kids learn to read, and also some kind of structured literacy where they're learning uh, in a way that matches their cognitive strengths. Awesome. Awesome. And, and Nancy, I, I don't want to let go without asking you, do you still mentor teachers and where can they seek you out as a mentor if they want to? I do. I do a lot of training. I am, uh, I, I train for Orton Gillingham Academy. Uh, Orton Gillingham Academy was established uh, in 1991 and actually incorporated in 95. Uh, to me, it is the keeper of uh, the, tr- you know, a, a very uh, true Orton Gillingham approach, not a program, but the approach, and that is the um, the underlying way that we teach that helps um, match how kids learn. So I do teach for them. Um, my name is out in Orton Gillingham Academy. I also have a website. Um, www.nancyredding.com and uh, information about uh, teaching mentoring is on there as well. And uh, Marsha Henry, um, who was my mentor, has been my mentor for uh, decades. And I have written a reading program called um, uh, Patterns for Success based on Orton Gillingham principles. Uh, it is going to, the second edition of that with, with much of it online is going to be released actually this summer uh, by ProEd Inc., which is out of Austin, Texas. So congratulations. those are ways to get hold of me. Congratulations on that successful program. Yes, and I will also put um, your website and um, and the patterns of success link within that website in the show notes for those people who want to seek you out and, and look for advice. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate you taking the time. It's been an honor to host you today. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Education Redefined. We welcome feedback. Join our Facebook group to leave a comment or a question. We look forward to hearing from you. Until then, stay tuned for our next episode.